labors of faithful saints through the centuries that we can take advantage of so that we would rightly understand it and have better insight in how to apply it. So we thank you for this gift. and that, But of course, just having those resources isn't enough. Lord, we want to live according to your word. We want to be faithful to it. And so I pray that you would not just help us to understand what we're reading here in Revelation, but you would You'd seal your word upon our hearts that we would live rightly. We'd have right convictions and um, know how to please you with our lives, especially in the hour of testing. And I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. All right, Revelation chapter 3. We'll be looking at the Church of Philadelphia. We'll read verses 7 through 13. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, The words of the Holy One, the True One, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you, because you have kept my word about patient endurance. I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I'm coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, and the new Jerusalem which comes down from my God out of heaven, and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So I was recently reading to Ezekiel, book that he had checked out from the library, a book, a Dr. Seuss book by the name of Horton Lays an Egg. If you're not familiar with that book, it's about an elephant named Horton who agrees to watch a, bird, a bird's egg, to lay on an, uh, sit on an egg until um, while this bird, Maisie, takes a short break. Well, in fact, what she's seeking to do is to abandon her responsibility to Horton, so He agrees, and she goes on a permanent vacation. And so as Horton is sitting on the nest on the top of the tree, he becomes really a a picture of steadfastness. He's exposed to foul weather. He ends up getting mocked by other animals. Uh, He even gets captured by hunters and uh, then goes on this sickening voyage. And he eventually ends up in this traveling circus. And that's actually when he runs into Maisie again. Um... But despite all of these trials, Horton refuses to leave the nest, often repeating this phrase, I meant what I said, and I said what I meant, an elephant's faithful 100%. Well, the church in Philadelphia is a lot like Horton. Just like the church of Sardis, which we saw last week, is a lot like Maisie, the lazy bird. In Christ's assessment here of the Philadelphian church, he doesn't actually have anything negative to say, just like he had 
really nothing positive to say about Sardis. And it can be broken into just three parts. Uh, The introduction, the commendation, and the assurance that he gives. We'll look first at the introduction in verse 7. He says, And to the church uh, in Philadelphia write the words of the Holy One, the True One, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. Well, Philadelphia, of course, is a different city than the one that hosts the the Eagles and the 76ers and the Phillies. Uh, This Philadelphia was located 75 miles south of Sardis in modern-day Turkey. Christ identifies himself to this church with four titles. You'll notice the Holy One, the True One, and essentially the one who has the key of David. So the first one he mentions, the Holy One. It occurs in the prophecy of Isaiah, this title more than any other book. And actually in Isaiah, it occurs over 30 times. So most of the occurrences of this title are in Isaiah itself. And it's usually a reference to the promised Messiah. Um, It's also a uh, favorite title of the demons when they come uh, to Christ in the New Testament, such as Luke 4.34. What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know you are the Holy One of God. So even the demons are recognizing this is the Son of God. He is God. He is the Messiah. Even Peter, when he made his confession of Christ and asked, To whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. He immediately follows that up with saying that you are, we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. So even there, Peter is affirming, I recognize you are the Son of God. And so this title, Holy One, designates Jesus as the one true God. He is the Messiah. He is the king. He is the God of Israel. He's also the true one. We know, of course, John 14, 6, Jesus is the way, the truth, the life. And what he's saying is what, uh, what he says is true, not what others are saying. He is the one who is true. His word is true and authoritative, not what philosophers say, not what people of other religions, not what experts say. His word is true, and therefore it is trustworthy. And he wants to remind this church of that. Hold fast. Believe me. Believe who I am and believe what I have said. And thirdly, he, he calls himself the one who possesses the key of David. This title, interestingly, is taken actually from Isaiah 22.22. Um, it's actually a reference to Eliakim as the chief steward of the royal household in that passage. And, and the idea there of saying he has the keys of the, of, uh, to the throne of David is that Uh, He has the power. He's the one that wields authority. And so the point here is that Jesus is the Messiah now holds those keys. He has exclusive power in heaven and on earth. Uh, Even as he said in the Great Commission, all authority has been given to me on heaven and earth. He alone has the power to admit and exclude who gets entrance to his kingdom of his own will. And that's important for us to recognize. Jesus is the one who decides who enters into the kingdom of heaven and who is excluded. People don't have that prerogative, though some people have claimed that they have in the past. People can discern if another person is truly saved by seeing, well, does their life 
and words correspond to what you read in Scripture, but nobody has the authority to declare whether one is truly a believer or not just upon their own their own will. Jesus alone has that prerogative. And that's important to clarify given the persecution this church is facing. Christ is reminding these faithful Christians who are being persecuted by some Jews in their city that they, in fact, are the ones who will actually inherit the kingdom because these Christians are the ones who have submitted themselves to the true king of Israel. And that brings us to the commendation. Beginning of verse 8, when he says, I know your works. This is the phrase he's used multiple times before. He says, Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. Right? Just as he expressed to all the previous churches, Christ reminds them that he knows their works. He knows what they've done. Nothing that, they, that, that they've had to go through has he missed. And he, because he sees what the, they've done, how they've endured, he's going to reward them for their faithfulness. And the, the open door that is placed before them signifies their access into the kingdom of God. He has granted them access to become co-heirs with him. And his point in saying this is, you're secure. You don't have to worry about these Jews who are claiming that you're following a false Messiah, that you will, that you will not inherit eternal life, that you have to become a Jew first. Nobody can bar them from entering if they have Christ. And then Jesus says, notice, I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. It's sweet. I mean, Christ is assuring this church that even though they feel very weak in regard to their ministry, they have been strong. And they've been strong because they have not yet given in or given up. On Christ, and the reason they feel weak is because they haven't yet compromised. Right, those that appear to be strong around them, those who have a reputation of strength, are actually the weak ones. Right, namely Sardis. But in fact, Sardis is not only weak; it's dead. They have a reputation for being strong, but they're dead. Jesus says, the Philadelphians, in contrast, show their strength. Simply by the fact that they haven't given up. They haven't given in. And just just think about this. This principle. So for instance, uh, when a race is coming to a close, the people who appear to be the strongest, people who appear to be the strongest, are not those who are in the lead. They're also not those who actually who are at the rear. The people who appear the strongest during a race are the spectators who are simply cheering the runners on because they feel, they look like they have all the energy left in the world. They're smiling, they're cheering, they're happy, but the runners are the ones that look exhausted. They're the ones that look tired. But I bet if they were to have a a race immediately afterwards, most of those runners would be able to still outrun the spectators because they're the ones that are actually in shape. They're the ones that are actually running. The the spectators look like they have strength because they haven't done anything. The runners look tired and weak because they are tired. And that's my point, is that just because a person feels weak and tired doesn't mean that they're actually weak. It could be 
that they're weak because they're the ones laboring. They feel weak because they haven't given up yet. And, and this needs to grip us because our culture is, is prone to assess strength primarily upon appearances. But if you think about it, some of the strongest people in the world, strong, especially when it comes to endurance events, so you think like ultra marathoners or those CrossFit nuts, they don't look big and bulky and huge. They actually often look quite lean or wrestlers. Right? <laughs> like They don't look massive most of the time. But they have strength that endures. And, and a lot of this is because strength, especially in, in endurance competitions, is not just something that's based upon um, the body's physical strength, but it incorporates mental strength as well. In fact, uh, those who have made it through BUDS in Navy SEAL training say this is what makes that um, training so challenging. It's because the mental endurance is actually even more hard, more difficult than the physical endurance that's required. Often, you know, they, in books that I've read about these, these SEALs, they, they said that some of the most athletic, you know, former uh, college athletes, they're the ones that actually drop out you know, early on because even though they can handle a lot of the physical stamina, they can't handle the mental strain. And the truly, um, the men that, that get through that are those who simply decided that quitting wasn't an option. They would have to be forced to quit. And I think the same is true of faithful Christians. The truly strong believers aren't going to compromise their commitment when they get discouraged or when the, when the work is seen to be hard or when they fail to see the fruit when things become financially difficult. Giving up and giving in for a faithful believer isn't an option. <laughs> it's, not, it's not on the table. They have to keep going. And such faithful Christians, because they're doing that, might not, by appearances, look impressive. They won't look strong. They might look weak and tired, but that's because they're working. It's easy to be lazy and to compromise convictions, but it's hard to be faithful. I mean, think of another illustration. Just think of, of what Titus says to women, or what Paul says to Titus regarding women in Titus 2. He says that the women are to be workers at home. And industry in the home, of course, means hard work and cleaning and cooking and caring for one's husband or children. And this is hard work, especially if the children are young. And many wives, as they go through this experience, are tempted to, to treat being tired as if it was a symptom of, of something that they have done wrong. When, in fact, it's often an indication of doing many things right. They're tired because they are do, they are hard at work caring for the responsibilities the Lord has given them. And the two ways that the Philadelphian Christians have shown their strength is in their faithfulness. Again, doing what Christ has called them to do and keeping Christ's word and not denying his name. The word keep here, it can refer to either guarding something or as in obeying something. And actually, both aspects of that word appear to be in view because both aspects are used, you'll notice, in just a few verses later in verse 10. 
because you have kept my word, right, obedience about patient endurance. You have obeyed my word about patient endurance. I will keep or guard you from the hour of trial that's coming on the whole world. So Christ is saying, because you have obeyed me, I will keep you safe. The same word keep is used both times. And the Philadelphian Christians have been faithful, it says, in their obedience. Notice, in particular, they have obeyed Christ's command to patiently endure. You've kept my word about patient endurance. That, that word endurance is hupamino. It was actually originally a military term used of an army holding a vital position at all costs. No matter how great the onslaught, no matter how outnumbered they were, that army would hold their position until the last soldier's dying breath. Just like the brave soldiers who defended the Alamo, these faithful Christians in Philadelphia haven't given up, despite their weakness. And even what appears to be hopeless circumstances. The word hupamino or endure is used to describe Job in James 5.11. When it says, Behold, we considered those blessed who endured. You have heard of the endurance of Job. And you've seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Right? Job didn't give in to uh, denying God. Even when his wife said, curse God and die. He said, naked I came from the womb, naked I shall return. Blessed be the name of the Lord. He endured. His faith endured. And when Jesus warns in Luke 21 that his followers will be hated by all for my name's sake, he says, but not a hair of your head will perish. He then says, by your endurance you will gain your life. Like the endurance is a critical virtue for Christians. If you're a Christian, in fact, you will endure. Right? The doctrine of the perseverance of the saints or the endurance of the saints. Romans 5.3 says even Christians rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering is what brings about endurance. Right? Just like exercise brings about the ability to endure more. It's, it's a trial. Trials bring about the ability to endure and not give up. Which is what we need. That's what's going to allow us to gain our lives by not giving in, not denying Christ when things are hard or discouraging. Not walking away and throwing in the towel and just say, okay, I'm just, it's just too much work. It's too hard. I'm just going to do things my way. In fact, the command for Christians to endure is found in Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. And I bring that up because Jesus says, you've kept my word about patient endurance. Assuming there's a command. Well, here's the command. Hebrews 12, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the, run, the race that is set before us. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So the point here is Christians endure not by... By not compromising, not giving up in the same way that Christ himself didn't compromise. He didn't give up when he was tempted by Satan. Or when all of his friends abandoned him. And, or when, the, the, when he knew in the Garden of Gethsemane 
that he would have to go forward. He never, even when he was on the cross being mocked, he didn't come down off the cross. But he, he drank the Father's wrath to the dregs. He endured. And the author of Hebrews is saying, we too, therefore, need to endure like he did. It's because they have been faithful to endure in their present trials and not given up despite this pressure to compromise and quit. Christ promises them in verse 10 that he will keep them from the greater trial that he's going to bring upon the earth. Now, given the, the context of this statement, it most likely refers to the three and a half years of the tribulation period, the, the second half of the, of the seven year tribulation. That will be described later in the book. Well, how will Christ keep them from that great trial? Well, some people believe that he, he will keep them from the tribulation because they will be taken up from the earth. They will be raptured prior to the tribulation. And, but if this is what Christ means, what about the other churches like Sardis or Laodicea who don't get this promise? Does that mean they won't be preserved or will they get, they will get this even though they haven't been faithful? It could also mean that Christ will especially guard this church, and I think by implication other faithful churches, from the intensity of the tribulation when it comes. They will be shielded by him from receiving all of the, the worst parts of its effects and trials that others will experience more fully. And the reason for this is because they've already proven themselves to be faithful. Jesus says if you're faithful in the small things, it'll show that you'll be faithful in greater things. And it's because they've already proven themselves and haven't given up, even though they are weak, they won't have to go through this much more severe tribulation to prove themselves. And note, actually, in your Bibles, at, in chapter 13, where it actually describes this period of tribulation, um, about the first beast and the second beast, it says at the end of chapter 13, verse 10, here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. This is the call for the perseverance and faith of the saints. And they've, these, these Philadelphian Christians have already proven they don't, they've already persevered. And they will, of course, persevere through any greater test that might come. And just as Christ promises to protect them, he commends them for having protected Christ's word from those who continue to deny the gospel. Verse 9, Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. That phrase, synagogue of Satan, we saw was used earlier in chapter 2, verse 9, uh, with the church of Smyrna. And like that reference, it, it most likely refers to the, a synagogue of Jews who were adamantly opposed to the gospel of Christ. Because they don't bow their knee to the true Messiah, but rather they reject the true Messiah, Jesus says that they are therefore not true Jews. 
And therefore, they actually make up a synagogue of Satan. They are, a, they are opposed to Jesus as much as Satan is. And therefore, really, Satan is more of their Lord than God himself. And because these Jews refuse to submit to their true Lord, and because the Philadelphian Christians refuse to deny him, Jesus says he will cause these Jews to actually come and bow themselves before the Philadelphian Christians. And the phrasing here is likely taken from a promise given to the Jews in Isaiah chapter 60, verse 14. It says there, The sons of those who afflicted you shall come bending low to you, and all who despised you shall bow down at your feet. They shall call you the city of Yahweh, the Zion of the Holy One of Israel. Actually, the whole of that chapter, Isaiah 60, is loaded with promises that are going to be given to the Jews when the Messiah returns. And now Christ is applying that promise to to this church that's made up of probably largely Gentile believers. So because these Jews in Philadelphia are refusing to bow to their true Messiah, they're forfeiting this promise. And it's, be giving, it's going to be given to those who will bow to the Messiah. Jesus then says, notice, that those Jews will see then, those of the synagogue of Satan, that he has loved them. That has loved these Philadelphian Christians. Well, this actually suggests that one of the claims that, is, that are being made by these Jews who are persecuting them is that the, the Holy One of Israel, the true God, there's no way that he could uh, embrace Gentiles. Nor could he embrace Jews who would embrace Gentiles. The very thought of that shows that um, you don't have a right understanding of the holiness of God. And such false claims, of course, would be consistent with how the Jews responded to the gospel going to the Gentiles in the book of Acts. Right, they're, they're fairly tolerant of even hearing that Jesus might have been the Messiah. They will listen to Paul and the apostles as they give proofs of the, that, that, that Christ really did line up with the Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah. They will tolerate that, but once they hear that Gentiles can also be made co-heirs of the kingdom, that's when they get violently hostile. So, it's they, 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 they don't like the fact that Gentiles can be included in being made fellow heirs of these promises made to Abraham. And that's probably where this hostility is coming to this church in Philadelphia because, of course, they preach the gospel. And that brings us to the assurance then that Christ gives after this commendation. In verse 11, he says this, I'm coming soon. Hold fast what you have, so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will give to that person who conquers, he says. Just lost my place. Hold fast what you have, so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. I will write on him the name of my God and the name 
of the city of my God, the, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God. Now, the first assurance Jesus gives here is that he's coming soon. Okay. Now, obviously, it's been 2,000 years since he made this promise. So, clearly, it's relative as far as time is concerned. But we must keep in mind that really only one thing is keeping Jesus from returning. And that's us. He's, he's not waiting for more time to pass. He's waiting for the church to complete the commission that he gave them 2,000 years ago. Namely, to go into every nation and baptize people on preaching the gospel, after preaching the gospel to them, and then uh, teaching them to believe all that he has commanded. Well, that still hasn't happened. There are still unreached people groups to this day, even though it's been 2,000 years. So the reason Jesus hasn't come yet is because he has done everything he needs to do. He's just waiting on the church. Peter makes this clear in his second epistle. He says, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should patient, but that should perish. Sorry, but that all should reach repentance. Right? Jesus is coming soon. The only thing keeping him back is his desire for all people to hear the gospel so that when he does come back in judgment, every man will know that they have rejected what they had already heard. So he's, he's just waiting for us to fulfill it, finish our task. And Jesus then exhorts them, hold fast what you have until I come so that no one may seize your crown. Right? If these Christians buy into the lives that these Jews are telling them that they should deny the Messiah, and they actually do so, they will effectually be throwing away eternal life. They'll be throwing away the forgiveness that's offered to them in eternal glory. Really, there's, there's no greater loss any person could ever incur. A job loss, the loss of a home to a fire, let's say, even, even the loss of children or of a spouse. None of these comes close to throwing away eternal life on account of a lie. Right? Just as Jesus said in Matthew 16, 28, what can a man give in exchange for his soul? Even if he gains the whole world. So how do these Philadelphian Christians guard themselves from such a loss? They simply need to hold fast to what they've received, what they know to be true. They need to keep abiding in Christ, the true one, the holy one, and cling to his word. And again, it's the second assurance Jesus gives them is that the one who does hold fast, who doesn't give up, who conquers, who overcomes, who's victorious, if he doesn't give up, he says he will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Now, the, the imagery here is actually tied to the exhortation. Right? The one who doesn't give in to the pressure, the temptation, the lies of Satan will show that they actually are the ones who are pillars of strength. And God, likewise, will then display them as pillars of strength in the coming kingdom. And what he's saying is your patient endurance right now is not being wasted. 
even though nobody understands what you're going through. Nobody understands how tired you are, how alone you are, how weak you feel. What you had to tolerate for years, Jesus says, I will reward you for your strength of character and everyone will know. I will give you a name. In the name of the city of my God. You will have a reputation for your endurance, for your strength. So even though they might feel beaten down and weary and tempted to give up because of their lack of strength, and because the race is hard and they're alone, and even when they might begin to wonder, is it even worth all of this effort? Is it worth the, the humiliation they're having to endure, the, 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 everybody looking on and treating them as if they're weak and pathetic? They want to know, is it worth it? And Jesus wants them to know the answer to that question. And the answer is the resounding yes. It is worth it. You will be rewarded for the strength displayed for your patient endurance. It's 7 o'clock on October 20th, 1968. A few thousand spectators remained in the Mexico City Stadium it was cool and dark, and the last of the marathon runners, each exhausted, were, were now being carried to their first aid stations. More than an hour earlier, the race was won by Mama Wolde of Ethiopia. And as the remaining spectators prepared to leave, those sitting near the marathon gates suddenly heard the, the sounds of sirens and police whistles. And all, all eyes at that point then turned to the gate. And a lone figure wearing the the colors of Tanzania entered the stadium. His name was John Stephen Akwahari. And he was the last man to finish the marathon. He'd actually fallen during the race, ended up dislocating his knee, and was badly injured. With his leg bloodied and bandaged, he grimaced with each hobbling step around the 400-meter track. Later, after the race, the reporter asked the question, which was on everyone's, everyone's mind. When you knew that you had lost the weight race, why did you keep going? He replied, my country did not send me 7,000 miles to begin a race. They sent me 7,000 miles to finish it. He was awarded the National Hero Medal of Honor. In 1983. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would give us such endurance. That even though we can be tried and tested. Tempted. To give up. Lord, that you would would use that, the suffering that we face. To produce endurance. Lord, even as you increase the intensity of the trials, that you would increase the strength of our endurance. Lord, I pray that you'd cause Grace and Truth Bible Church to be a church that endures, especially as things continue to get worse in this region, that we would not increase in fear, but instead increase in confidence, increase in courage, increase in love, increase in joy, so that all will see that our faith is strong 
because our God is true. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.